0: Hey, friends, Chaz here. Before we jumped into the episode today, I wanted to let you know that we had some problems with the sound r- recording. So I need to apologize about the quality of Scott's audio, but it's just such insightful information that we really thought you would still benefit from hearing it. So uh, without further ado, here's our episode. Welcome to the Kingdom Roots podcast with Scott McKnight, the conversation designed to look at how the kingdom took root then and how it's taking root now. Today on the podcast, we have a conversation about what do Bible scholars have to say to theologians. This guidance might be something that um, many times these two categories of biblical scholars and theologians kind of sometimes just uh, stay in their own camps. But you're suggesting there's probably some necessary conversation we need to be having. And um, and you think you got some guidance for us today on that? Well, I've
1: been thinking about this a lot lately because um, InterVarsity Press asked, Hans Borsma, a theologian who's at Noshoda House in Milwaukee and was at Regent out in Vancouver to write a volume. I think his is called Five Things a Theologian Once Bill guessing an editor at InterVarsity invited me to write the Bible site Five Things. A Bible scholar would like theologians to know. This sort of thing happens in class all the time. Because I believe that most people are instinctively theologians and not biblical scholars and not biblical experts. It is not common for a first year seminary student to distinguish the theology of Matthew from the theology of Luke, or the theology of Peter from the theology of Paul. Many of them know Paul. Rather, most uh, beginning seminary students think in terms of theology and only grow in their appreciation of the diversity of voices within the biblical text. And it's not that, Uh, they haven't studied the Bible, is that those categories have not become natural to them. So uh, a text can come up in, in the Gospels, in which it says in Matthew and in Mark in different ways, but overlapping and very similar, that when Jesus was in his hometown of Nazareth, He was unable, or he did not do miracles there. And when that sort of question comes up um, in first-year seminary students, they will say, well, Jesus was divine, and therefore, whereas that's the sort of conclusion that biblical scholars will say, well, you're pressing theological categories into a biblical text that doesn't seem to be using that sort of category. Or um, many Christians, many young seminary students, will impose uh, a soteriological system, how we are saved, onto the biblical text, and what they're doing is using the categories of Paul that have been filtered many times through the Reformation, through either Luther or Calvin, sometimes Wesley, or beyond that, Bart, uh, Jonathan Edwards, etc. They will impose those texts, uh, those ideas, on the New Testament. And the New Testament theologian looking at Romans three or Romans five is asking a different set of questions. What did that text mean for the Apostle Paul at that time? Whereas the theologians tend to overwhelm that. So this this has been a running battle. Sometimes biblical scholars say to theologians, you do your work and leave us alone. And systematic theologians in the theology department say, you do your work and leave us alone. And sometimes the theologians look at biblical scholars as spending all their time on arcane questions that don't make a difference. And frankly, at times, New Testament scholars are just doing history and they're not really even pursuing the truth. Whereas we would say at times that the various voices of the New Testament or of the Bible itself, chronicler versus the person who writes, the kings, uh, or Samuel, or Isaiah versus Jeremiah, or Ezekiel, that we think those people all deserve a voice at the table in their own way. And this creates diversity in theology, whereas theologians tend to be operating toward some sort of met- meta narrative or an overall systematic depiction of what Christian faith is, for our time, of course, and they, um, they mute the distinctive voices of the Bible. So, Hans Borsma and I are writing matching volumes, and we're not looking at one another's volumes. Uh, so, I'm not responding to Hans, and Hans is not responding to me. We are offering up our theories. Our approaches of what we would like, and so for me, I'm I'm right, what I would like theologians to know about biblical studies or uh, about how we think theology should be done. So um, I have, um, I have, I think uh, five large themes that I'm looking at right now. And uh, so I'll turn it over to you to see if you have any questions about what I've said so far.
0: Yeah, I, I would be curious, uh, maybe before you jump into some of those themes would be, um, if from a biblical scholar perspective, do you think the um, early church writers like Paul and Peter and the others that you mentioned, authors of the gospels, do you see, do you think they saw themselves as doing theology as we see it today?
1: Um, I think that that word theology is the the gambit or the debate and the the trap here. Uh, It depends on how you define theology. Um, I think it is fair to say that every Christian is a theologian. So I think it is fair to say that Peter and Paul and James and Jude and Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they were doing theology. They were not doing systematic theology the way we are doing systematic theology. They don't have anything like trying to put it all together. Um, I don't even think Romans is that way, although within the pages of the Bible, Romans is the closest to this sort of thing. Um, But it is difficult, I think. Um, to call Romans systematic theology. I think that would be a misnomer. There are systematic reflections. There are theological reflections by Paul where he seems to be thinking a little bit more abstractly, but by and large, Paul is not doing systematic theology the way we would do it today. And I've been reading systematic theology for the last few months, Uh, dipping in here and there and reading some of them completely. And I I would say quite confidently that Paul is not doing that. Uh, So we have to piece together from what they say and how the church has thought about what they say into some kind of coherent approach that uh, makes all of Christian theology Uh, work together. And that's sort of what systematic theology does. It uses the Bible and Christian history's theological reflections to put together a coherent
0: system. Are there any other um, systems of of theology or approaches to theology that would be uh, helpful to be aware of, or just maybe things you interact with too, if not just systematic theology um, but other things like natural theology or um, you know things like that
1: well, a systematic theologian um, i 've been reading Sarah Coakley, who is um, a uh, united Kingdom an english pro- uh, professor I think she 's retired now, but she 's an English professor who writes systematic theology um and she calls her theology uh, in French, and what she is doing is trying to use all disciplines or every discipline that she thinks matters for a topic to put it together. So, yes, there's sort of natural theology, philosophical theology. I guess there's sociological theology and psychological theology. There's all these anthropological theologies. There's all these uh, potential fields, but that's the genius of systematic theology is to try to put it together. But we, in the, in the biblical fields, um, we see things and we think, you know, that is not very well anchored in the text of Scripture, and various authors of the New Testament or the Old Testament would approach this topic in a different way, and it deserves to be heard rather than squelched by the voice of systematic theology. So, so yes, um, and in my project, I've, um, we were all we were both given five things, and I won't share what Hans um, is put together for his, but one of the things that, uh, this is a big for me, is that um, there are impulses in the fields, the the major impulse for biblical scholars is an impulse of retrieval, at some level of going back to what the Bible says, looking at the Bible all over again, and of course, no one looks at it as if for the first time. Although Marcus Borg may have meant thinking about like that, thinking about Bible study that way, but we go back to the Bible. We we study Isaiah, and we study Matthew, and we study Paul, and we study Hebrews, and we, we study and we try to put together what these ideas are in those texts. That's the impulse of retrieval. I think this, the impulse of theologians is expansion. An expansive impulse is to, it's sort of, impulse. It is to, to, to listen carefully to the biblical text in light of what biblical scholars are saying. Although not all theologians pay that close attention to the developments of biblical studies. And we as biblical scholars would say at times that because systematic theologians ignore what is going on in biblical studies, they're missing out on some of the great fruit of what's happening. And their theology would change accordingly. But but I see by and large theologians are expanding the biblical theology in fruitful ways that take what the Bible says, the various authors in their context, and bring it to bear upon new situations so that the expansive impulse, the progressive impulse to grow in our knowledge is designed in a quest for truth uh, at its best, and it should be, uh, in a sense, conservatively connected to what the texts actually say. Now, sometimes I read theologians for pages, and they hardly bring up the Bible, or they hammer away at one passage in the Bible and don't seem to be including other passages that push in different directions so that we develop a balance. So um, I think that those are the two major impulses of Christian theology. And as a result of that, I think that the Bible people uh, have angles. They have things they'd like to say, and I know I have things. The Mm -hmm. first thing I want to say to theologians, they've heard this their entire life, is that theology... That is ungrounded in Scripture falls short. So, um, a, th- a systematic theologian has the most challenging task imaginable in, the th- in church in church life when it comes to the academic life, because they have to be good at Bible, mm-hmm. they have to be good
0: in history, in that sense. Or at least they have to know how to read, and they have
1: to be good at church history, and they have to be good at the history of theology, and they have to be good at modern philosophy, and history of philosophy and culture, so that they can speak in our world. And good theologians do just that. So, but but we press we press that they need to go back to the Bible. In that sense, the Bible scholars, although we have. More than enough to read and more than enough to work with. No one person can master it all. Um, uh, we think they need to go back to the Bible more. So that would be that would be one of my points. A, a second and one is Scott. Oh yeah. Before
0: you jump into the second point, um, th- that kind of. Cue a question I've been thinking about as I've been hearing you, you talk about this, and that's how do we make sure that we don't just, either from the biblical scholar side or the theology side, um, just go in seeking to find w- what we're looking for? So w- whether it's just staying with one passage or whether it's staying um, with one. Uh, system of systematic theology how do you how do you make sure that that 's not what you 're doing either in biblical scholarship or theology? yeah, all right First,
1: this is the tension, and this this draws us into hermeneutics. Um, this is the tension between the subject and the object let 's just say that i 'm the subject or chaz you 're the subject, and the object is scripture. Well, some people think that the only thing a subject can see in the object is what the subject imposes on the object. Other people are sort of a, and that's a, sort of a subjectivism of some sort. Then there's another side that's sort of an objective empiricism that we can, um, and this was made famous in, in gospel studies, by Giza Vermesh, a Jewish scholar in England, who said it it, it shouldn't be beyond the possibility of an ordinary or an intelligent person to be able to go back to the Gospels and study Jesus in an objective way. All right, so that, that's sort of, um, G.R. Elton is the famous historian of England who operated this way. And um, I'm, I'm inclined to say that We need to recognize the imposing nature of the subject on the object. But we need to recognize the reality of the object itself and the capacity that we have as made in the image of God through the power of God's Spirit in the context of the church community to be able to look at that object and to hear God speak as God wants to be heard. In that text, this is called critical realism, and that is the uh, ability for humans over time with uh, hypotheses and suggestions and criticisms and listening to others and doing this in context with others of going back to a text, listening to another, and hearing what their voice is. Now, a second point I wanted to make is that. Uh, and this is controversial for some people in my field. Um, and I've been reading uh, a really wonderful essay lately by a man named Marcus Bachmull. Um, That biblical studies that are not interdisciplinary fall short. And I'm being kind with that word interdisciplinary and I may change it. Biblical studies that are not theological fall short. In other words, if I'm a Christian, I have an obligation and a responsibility to pay attention to how the church has interpreted scripture and what can be called the great tradition or the major consensus of the church. I believe ought to constrain me in my interpretation of scripture. And that means for me... And Chaz, I know you're in a tradition that doesn't really do this. They think they don't anyway. (laughs) Um, I think that we should be constrained by the creed, the Niceno-Constantinopolitan creed. I think we should be constrained also by our Protestant uh, orientation. And I think we should be constrained by our denominational Interpretation. If we have any integrity, and we operate within our uh, denomination, we should clearly be connected to that theological tradition as what we think is that is a, is not only valid but the the interpretation that we will use. So I believe that we uh, we need to talk to one another. I have lots of biblical scholar friends who don't think theologically and who don't care what the church tradition has said. And I collect some of these in the book. A third thing is um, I think um, that theological studies need to uh, be more biblical in their orientation and in their categories. I recently read um, a book by Kevin Van Hooser and Daniel Trier, Kevin is at Trinity, and Daniel Tribe is at Wheaton, in which uh, they talk about the idea of a mirror. Uh, And Kevin and Dan both love to play with metaphors, and so they drove this metaphor pretty hard, but I thought it was very useful. And that is that um, we need to uh, use the language of the Bible as much as possible and let those terms shape our theology. There are times, Chess, you're far enough along your theological mm-hmm. categories, and you say to yourself, or terms, th- these terms make no sense to me. Mm-hmm. And people in the church have no idea what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. And so I think I think that theological studies need to have some biblical foundation in in a deeper way. A fourth point that I would make is, and this is a big development, I think theological studies need to be more narrative. And in this one, if you look at the history of Christian theology, it's been shaped in two major ways. Uh, One is by the three articles of the creed, Father, Son, and Spirit. Spirit only gets a couple lines. Um, And that I call that the three articles approach. Um, And then the other approach has been the topics approach. And if you pick up most systematic theologies today, you'll find uh, most of them operate, or I shouldn't say most because I haven't read all of them, but a lot of them operate with God, man or humans, Christ, sin, salvation. And they get into uh, ecclesiology and eschatology. And so they gather the uh, Christian theology around those topics. And this has been extraordinarily fruitful in the history of the church. If you want to know what the church teaches about salvation, you go to one of these theology books and they'll talk about it. And the ones that are designed as textbooks will tell you how to think about it, what people have said. And the ones that are more academic or for scholars to think about I won't tell you what the, the basics, they just dive right in and start talking. This is the way Sarah Coakley does Trinitarian theology. Um, Robert Jensen in his two volume systematic theology is similar, but if you pick up someone like Millard Erickson um, or a standard textbook type approach to theology uh, like Thomas Oden, and you'll get the basics, and they'll tell you the big picture, and these are the five views of atonement, and this is this, 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 and they outline it. But what I've noticed in this approach, Jez, is a lack of narrative. God didn't give us a systematic theology, and I think that's worth thinking about. I'm not saying that all theology is wrong by any means, but I think there's a narratival plot to the Bible that could help us reframe our theology in ways that would keep us closer to the biblical text, Mm -hmm. to the authority of scripture. Um, And so I think that um, theology needs to be more more narrative. I'm encouraged by recent developments by some of my friends who write theology, like Mike Bird in Australia, Kevin Van Hooser I know is writing one. They have an attentiveness to the narrative of Scripture in a way that will help us reframe the topics or the three articles into into a narrative bed or a narrative framework that will, I think, give us uh, new perspectives on how to do theology. Now, the last one. Um, Theology is meant to be lived. And lived theology is the ultimate form of Christian theology. It's not simply ideas. Uh, It is how we live that matters even more than what we believe. Now, I'm not against what we believe. But what we believe is not enough. Our theology is not genuine theology until it's embodied in the way we live. So I I've said this about Romans, and we've talked about Romans on this podcast, Mm -hmm. is that Romans twelve through sixteen is not the application of Paul's theology; Mm -hmm. it is the embodiment of Paul's theology, and in that sense, Romans one through eleven might be an expression of the kind of life that Paul wanted people to live, a sort of rationalization of of life as it is lived properly. So, um, Jazz, these are some of the big ideas that I'm exploring in the book. And um, it's some challenges to theology. And I know my theology friends are, they in many ways agree with what I'm saying. or in part agree with it, but I'm not always sure that they live up to that. And um, I'm sure Hans Boersma will have things to say to me or to biblical people that will say, oh, "You guys have some nice ideas, but you you need to improve, and this is what you need to
0: do." So, yeah, those are, those are some thoughts that I've been working with. No, it's, that's that's good things, I think it's good just to. And here's the here's the odd. Thing. I am um, I am not
1: grateful for the virus. And I don't, I don't blame God for the virus or anything like that. Yeah. But the virus canceled all my speaking engagements, all our travel plans. And so what else am I going to do with my time? This is a project that I didn't plan on having done until fall. Yeah. And uh, I was within a few weeks of being completed with this project.
0: Oh, that's great.
1: So um, uh, so during the virus time, I've been able to do a lot of reading and translating, and it's been good. It's been
0: good. Yeah, you, obviously you're doing some good work, and I think it's just it's so important the fact that the – there's this conversation going on between biblical scholars and, and theologians um, because this is going to make uh, both sides better. And that's uh, yeah. something that is just true of the the nature of everything written in the Bible and, and Christian life in general to be able to come together in these ways. So I think we got time for just about one last question. And so if you're yeah. good with um, ending things with this question here, I'm curious as you look back, um, obviously more in-depthly at Biblical Scholarship, but, but pretty seriously at Theology um, with this project, what would you say are the biggest forces shaping um, first Biblical Studies, and then what would you say are the biggest forces shaping Theology as, as it's being done right now? Oh,
1: the biggest forces shaping Biblical Studies? Mm-hmm. Uh, by far. Biblical studies are being shaped by history. So historical studies, what did Jesus mean as a first century Galilean Jew who was poor? What did Paul mean as someone who grew up in the diaspora probably in Tarsus and then was educated more formally in Jerusalem as a Jewish budding rabbi now taking the gospel into the Gentile world, what did that mean? So history is what matters. Um, In systematic theology, uh, I don't, I find uh, systematic theology driven by questions of cultural relevance. So uh, as I told you, I've been reading Sarah Coakley, she's fascinated by questions about gender, about sexuality, about art, the impact of art, about religious experience. She is exploring Christian theology through the category of desire, God's desire for us and our, being prompted by the spirit to desire God. And um, Kevin Van Hooser and the evangelical side are being prompted by hermeneutical questions about the meaning of a text, about metaphor, about and Kevin is exploring the idea of drama, um, but he's also quite intent on our theology being lived. So I think there's uh, when it comes to theology, there's so many questions. Some of them are just exploring Karl Barth. You know, Karl Barth by far the most influential theologian today, and uh, so I would say that's a driving force as well.
0: Yeah, no, that's good. Well, uh, any thoughts to send us away today to wrap up our time um, together? I definitely appreciate you opening our um, eyes to this conversation that's going on. Um, Well, you know, I I think everybody's
1: living in this virus time right now. I don't know when this is going to show up on our podcast, but, uh, you know, I'm just hoping that we'll be wise, that churches will do the right thing. That we won't be exposing people to the virus and spreading it. And that we will play safe and play nice and wait this virus out uh, until we can find vaccines and therapeutics that will lead us into health. So, um, you know, be safe. And my friend Mike Len, a pastor at Brentwood Baptist in Nashville, Brentwood, uh, Tennessee uh is challenging us to to learn from the virus. Yeah. What are we gonna learn from this? What 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 is happening in our lives right now that we say, you know, I want to keep this and I don't want to go back to the way it was. I think a lot of people just can't wait to get back to the way it was. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe maybe that's that's what will happen. But I, I have a feeling that there's some things about our life right now that we would uh we would like to hang on to
0: a bit. Yeah, I totally agree. Awesome. well thanks scott and thanks our listeners for joining us today um i you know stay tuned to things as um, scott continues to wrap up this project and it will be turning into a book but um you know for the sake of you know we're talking about the the, the kingdom and this conversation is necessary for the kingdom to continue to flourish um, where we are now so uh, thanks again for joining us we look forward to be with you next time as we continue our conversation on how the kingdom took root then and how it's taken taking root now.